Thank you to Target for sponsoring this episode. Target is committed to using their size, scale, and resources to help heal and create lasting change in Minneapolis and across the country. Up next, we have Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. He's an activist, author, filmmaker, and a senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. This is also our last guest from our special mini-series, featuring prominent voices in the pursuit of racial justice to mark the anniversary of George Floyd's murder in this month of May. Our host sat down with Reverend Dr. Otis Moss to talk about why our community needs public health, not public safety, and why it is important for people to think of Black not just as a color, but a tradition with culture and history. My favorite part is the amazing story about his grandfather who walked miles upon miles on foot to vote, being rejected and walking miles again to another. But I don't want to give too much away. So enjoy the show. My name is Otis Moss III. I serve as senior pastor at the Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. It is a church that is unashamedly Black, unapologetically Christian. We are rooted in the Black liberation theological tradition, and we are committed to transforming our 10-block radius uh, where our church uh, sits on the south side of Chicago. If anyone ever comes to, to Chicago, please come down 95th Street and get right off the uh, Dan Ryan Expressway uh, to 400 West, 95th Street, right near Eggleston, and uh, we will welcome you with open arms or a fist bump, depending upon where we are with the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> right on. Right on. Um, I might just do that, actually. I'll be in Chicago in July. Well, that'd be um, extraordinary. We'd love to have you. Tell me, what does it mean to be unapologetically Black? You know, I had a conversation when I first came to Trinity because I, I come out of the, the, the Black Baptist tradition and uh, there were people in the denomination that were worried uh, that I was going to move the church into the, into the Baptist tradition. And I said to this individual, I said, you must understand that Trinity is UCC by history but we are black by God's divine activity, uh, meaning that we do not uh, create an oxymoron or any type of separation between our Africanity and our Christianity. Uh, that our culture, see people, when people hear black, they just assume color. We're talking culture, history, ethnicity, our stories, the stories of our ancestral heritage are connected to our faith practice. And you cannot extricate uh, our, our culture, our history, our heritage, uh, the stories of our ancestors from, from our faith practice. You know, the one thing that I was reflecting on uh, before this conversation, I think speaks to that. And it's one of me, you know, coming from the north side of Minneapolis in Minnesota, where you uh, find it sometimes difficult to find people that look like you. Mm. Now, if you want to just go hang out somewhere, where do you go, right? If you want to go to the store and buy a doll for your little girl, where do you go? 
Um, mm. You know, there's so much of where can you find, where do you go related to who you are um, in a city that defines itself by being inclusive, but you have mm -hmm. to really search to find representation of who you are um, yes. and to find the relatability aspect. And um, when I was reading sort of your background and the legacy that you have, which is, you know, you carry a name um, of generations, which which has got to be um, just a huge honor um, to think about. And we'll get into that a little bit. Um, you know, your father, your grandfather, um, you know, being from Morehouse, you know, I remember going to Atlanta and looking at the street names and I'm like, oh, man, I can't imagine what it would feel like to have street names after people <laughs> that I've read about. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I just want to just talk about because you said that the importance of sort of that history and tying it. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know <laughs> if uh, if we truly understand the importance of understanding the history, um, where you're from and having those spaces where you feel like you belong because the representation is there. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge for every person of color, especially people of African descent, is to find finding free space where you can flourish and thrive. I mean, you mentioned the idea of finding a doll that that looks like you. That anti-blackness is not just uh, specifically saying that I, I don't like you, but it's also making you invisible. You know, that's what Ralph Ellison was talking about, what it, what it means to be an invisible man in, 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 in American society. And in this moment, at, at this time, it, it's important for, for, for people of African descent to be able to uh, sip from the well of, of their heritage, uh, embrace and engage uh, the issues of, 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 of today. Um, and recognize that our heritage, our history is not solely rooted in the framing of trauma. Mm. It is so much that is triumphant and powerful and beautiful. And a lot of our history is, is, is most of our history is prior to 1619. Uh, though we uh, focus on 1619 to the present, rightfully so because of our current condition. Uh, you know, all those things are are necessary in terms of our being able to to, to thrive in this in this instant in this moment in this environment. Mm -hmm. You might have just surprised uh, a few people saying that our history existed before sixteen nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot, thousands upon thousands of years, um, and our you know, I'm I'm a pastor, a a Christian minister, and. Outside of our community, you know, inside of our community, it's 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 a given that when we're talking about the Christian tradition, we're talking about uh, people of African descent, people of color. Outside of the tradition, people are looking at me like I'm, you know, an alien. He's like, "What are you What are you talking about?" It's like, "Well, yeah, that guy Moses, you like? Yeah, he grew up in Africa. You know, uh, that guy Jesus, you really like? He was a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew living under occupation, and his family decided to hide him where." in Africa when he was a child. So, so when you are looking at this tradition, and from that perspective, it becomes global. Yeah. America likes to see the tradition as something that is not global, where other people are joining in much later. 
when in reality, um, you know, people of color, you know, African Asiatic community has been central to it. Yeah. And so we have sort of our history and then the moments that we're living in now. And, you know, the connection for me of your your dad, you know, being with Martin Luther King also just gives me some goosebumps. I remember just going into museum and seeing, I think, a Bible that he had Mm. or seeing the desk that he wrote at and and needing to just almost sit down, Mm. you know, just feeling kind of weak at the knees. Um, thinking about his age, his impact, um, the burdens uh, that he carried and and being so thankful um, for what he did. And sometimes we can see the most visible and sometimes miss everyone around that made that possible. And so I just wanna say thank you to you and your family um, for contributing uh, to what, what we have now. But when I think about what our people have lived through and died for. And then last May, this video comes out in Minneapolis. And we know we have seen all the videos before. So this is no way not acknowledging, you know, Philando Castile and Aubrey and Brianna and Freddie Gray and Mm -hmm. Trayvon, you know, all of all of the names that we have unfortunately um, known so well um, that it became sort of the instigation for us to move on things that we should have been moving on. But something happened um, with George Floyd that felt remarkably different in the response. Mm. Why, why, do you, why do you think that was the case? Because I've heard people say, what well, was because we were captivated uh, because it was the pandemic? Hmm. That's a great question. It was a combination, I, I believe. It was the the isolation, along with the the time of the video. So, in isolation, we have been looking at our devices at a higher rate, and then you have this moment of now we know over nine minutes. You know, we thought it was just under nine minutes of a public execution, a public execution as, as a man pleaded for, for his life by a person who was funded, trained, and sponsored by the state. We'd seen quick videos, you know, videos that move very quickly, and we're, we're trying to really capture and understand what's going on in those videos. There are a few few seconds. There there may be um, you know forty five seconds uh, as is you know in the in the case of Eric Garner, uh, but here you have almost ten minutes. That is an extraordinary long time to witness someone's life taken in front of you, and the bravery of Darnella Frazier, the young lady who recorded that, if she had not been as courageous, we would not witness the dialogue about how do we reimagine public health. I don't like to say public safety. I don't like to use the word uh, criminal justice or policing because our community needs public health 
public health means, you start a conversation about how do we ensure that a George Floyd is, is not murdered? How do we make sure that there is not economic apartheid and health inequalities? Who do we call uh, when there's someone having a mental health crisis? That's the public health discussion. It is, if we don't move to that, uh, we will always be in a reform discussion about how we can tweak a system that is detrimental to uh, to the health and well-being of of people of African descent, and being in isolation, witnessing something for ten minutes, the viral nature of of the video. We are in a digital age of social media. All of those things moving together, and still with the residue. Uh, the 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 painful, challenging um, residue of an administration at the time that had embraced Confederate antebellum rhetoric. All of that together, if you have a heart, if you have any sense of empathy, regardless of your ethnicity or your privilege and station in life, you had to be moved. If you weren't, I believe that you were deeply infected and affected by COVID-16-19, not 19, COVID-16-19, which is the most devastating disease America has, uh, has yet to, to deal with, um, but has taken more lives than any other disease in this country. The bravery of Darnella and the witnesses I thought about, I think I recognized the importance of the video at the time. I don't think I understood the true acts of bravery until I watched the trial. Mm. When you see the, the range from a nine-year-old on up that stood there and what, what captivated me um, in those videos was the moments in which they were stepping out to help and the officer simply put his hand on their hip and they moved back, right? The way in which we have been conditioned to know that that is a signal right. of harm was heartbreaking uh, to me on top of, like they were risking their lives in the simple mm -hmm. act of trying to save a life mm -hmm. in this act of, of racism, right? That we've not, yeah. we've not, we've not spent time understanding the impact on that in ways that led and leads to a death happening like that mm -hmm. or is where I think the, the term uh, sort of this reckoning on race mm -hmm. has come from. And so do you, mm -hmm. do you think that we're, we're in this time of reckoning? Do you, do you, do you believe that? I don't use the term reckoning. I don't think we're in a reckoning. If you were in a wreck, if you're reckoning with something, it truly means that you're wrestling, facing, and seeking to repair what is broken. We're in a facing moment. So we're facing it, and some people are choosing to close their eyes in the midst of it. Or, which is, there's a, there's a wonderful um, uh, uh, director by the name of uh, Akira Kurosawa. Uh, Akira Kurosawa did The Seven Samurai. Uh, Ron, um, all these incredibly classic movies, The Hidden Fortress, but he has a film called Rashomon. And, and Rashomon is about a crime 
but all of the witnesses see something different. And he's raising this question about, not about whether witness testimony is uh, legitimate, but he's raising the question that some people choose not to see certain things. A crime happens and there are some people based upon their investment in what's happening to say, oh no, it didn't happen, I didn't see that. It was right in front of them, but no, I didn't see that, that didn't happen. And so we, this is our Rashomon. This is, this is literally our Rashomon in, in America where there are some who want to reckon and then there are others who are saying, there's nothing wrong. This is the greatest country in the world. How dare you say anything? Leave if in fact you don't like it. It's like, then you really don't know history. He said, do you know how I got here? But anyway, that's a whole other story. That is a whole other story <laughs> and one that people also need to investigate. You know, and I mean, I think that, so let's talk about that because you have people that are standing in and I think that's a perfect connection to like a nine-year-old, right? Like Darnella in her, in her teenage years was mm. like, I'm going to make an act of bravery. I'm not, I'm going to choose not to walk by to um, the firefighter who, you know, made a phone call that worked to intervene that, that understands that, uh, you know, she might have to make a phone call and ask for backup. She knows the mm. difference between right and wrong. Right. And she chose to make an act. And I think that in things that are so obviously wrong and violent, you know, it's more difficult to ignore those things. Mm. But racism and acts of hate and, and offense, offenses don't always come in that most obvious way that we witnessed in that video. And I think many people are wrestling with, if you don't understand racism, <laughs> you know, and you don't have, or if you're learning to understand how race and racism and institutional challenges work and you witness something, they're struggling with how do they find their voice and intervene if they don't feel like the expert. There were no experts on that, on that corner that day. Right. There were just people that said it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so any, any advice of those, those people that are coming into or want to come into their voice on these issues? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that's a wonderful question and, and a thought. And I think that you kind of led us in, in, down the path that you, you find your, your voice, you know your your moral center or discover or, or reaffirm your, your moral center. You don't have to be the frontline activist. You don't have to be the uh, intellectual savant around public policy. Dr. King says, you just got to have to serve and find the space where you can serve. There are some who are gifted in teaching. There, there are some who are passionate, who are project managers, <laughs> who can help us manage the project of reckoning with what we're dealing with. Uh, there, there are those who are editors. When I speak of editing, editing from sound to, to video, who can bring together a collage of images that uh, nurture our soul. Some can just write poetry. Uh, and some will preach. Uh, others are athletes and will bring together communities 
in those athletic events that are more than just the idea of working to achieve a collective goal, but add a consciousness uh, to those uh, moments where you are competing with, the, with another team or another human being. Everybody can serve. You know, I, th I think Dr. King put it this way. He said that, uh, and I paraphrase, but I've always loved it when he when he said that uh, uh, that uh, that everybody can serve. He says that uh, you may not be able to paint like Michelangelo. You may just be a street sweeper, but street sweep the streets the way Michelangelo, you know, painted. Uh, you know, that to sing in, at the level in which Marian Anderson uh, used to sing with power. Everybody, wherever you are, you can do it with excellence and do it for the service of humanity. The video and social media, we touched on a little bit. And one of the things that I think I love so much about your church is the integration of multimedia. And what I love about it is not that it hits all of the ways in which I learn and, and get sort of interested, but what I love is how it allows for a younger generation to express um, emotion, to be engaged in the church, to bring their creativity, to bring their vision, um, to engage their peer group. and. I don't know if we appreciate as much sort of the role of storytelling and creativity in this movement of social justice. And I know, I think that this is something that's passionate, a passion place for you. And I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your thinking. You know, I appreciate you bringing that up because that is one of my my passions and and, and loves and around multimedia, especially film, arts in, in, in general. Trinity, Trinity, we have attempted to embrace the, the artistic side in reference to the presentation of, of the gospel and the communication to our wider village. We have a wonderful team of, of artists in residence and poets, set designers, dancers, uh, you, you name it. it just, just a wonderful group of, of, of people uh, just doing work. But Multimedia allows us to reach people in ways we never could with an analog setup. So, you know, we, we, have a, we have a church of analog and digital people. We have some who are analog natives, and then we have some who are digital natives. And then we have some people who are analog who are moving to digital. And those are kind of interesting individuals in general, um, you know, that are moving in that direction. And we use what is called a 360 model uh, for impacting uh, the mind, body, uh, and spirit. The 360 model is really just borrowed from graphic design, where you know, in graphic design and also in the development of, of, of web pages, where you raise the question around how people learn, and that some people are visual, uh, some people it's auditory. Some people are tactile, some people are kinetic. Uh, it's all these different ways in which people learn, but you bring all of those pieces together when designing something to make sure that you are connecting with everyone in, in the audience. And, and we, are, we, we use that 
when we are doing work at Trinity because we believe Jesus used that model too. I mean, I mean, so here's Jesus. He's like this auditory guy, right? Um, he's speaking. But, you know, for some people also, it has to be tactile. Or there has to be this movement and touch. Others, it has to be kinetic in terms of, 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 of how he, he heals. And when he tells, shares sacred wisdom, it's never in the traditional European academic sense. Let me give you this whole philosophical layout of what this means. And let me break down the metaphysical. No, he tells a story <laughs> that your mama can go home and repeat. Didn't you hear what Jesus said? You know, <laughs> and then he tweets. I mean, he gives his blessed are they, you know, these little short little tweets all the time. You can only have like 120 characters and what, what he states so that you can pass this on. So borrowing from that, and he uses mobile ministry. So we're all used to using our cell phones. We're mobile in our communications. Jesus borrows that same framework, or really we get that same framework from Jesus. And, and I use the idea this way, is that he didn't have a synagogue, temple, church, to go to. He said, wherever I go, foxes have holes, <laughs> birds of the air have nests, son of man has no place to, to, to lay his head, because I'm going to go where the people are. I'm going to be mobile in the ministry, in the work, in the community organizing, in the engagement, in the healing, versus saying, you all come to me. He just goes into communities. So if you use that model, you end up with a very digital-centric model of doing work. Are we mobile? Are we able to reach people where they are? The language that we use, is the language, is it a story form in which can be repeated? That's what's so beautiful about film and why people connect with film. And you know, you get a bunch of guys and sisters together and they start quoting stuff. Like for example, I get, me and some of my friends, we come to come together and there's always gonna be a joke where we'll start talking about like coming to America, the original, not that coming to America too, but the original one, and somebody's gonna act out scenes from it because that's like one of my favorite comedies. And then it leads to these other things because it, it connects us with memory and what we were doing at that moment and all of these kind of things. We have to do the same thing when we're, we're ministering uh, with, with, with people to be able to communicate this sacred wisdom, the, the deep compassion and justice-centered theology that comes from Jesus that demands that we reach and stand with and for those who are the disinherited of this community, of this nation. That model, that model is, is how we flow and, uh, you know, unapologetically. unapologetically. <laughs> Church, we're unapologetic about it. Yeah. See, you almost have me say, like, I should start going into work and saying, what would Jesus do? <laughs> because I was, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, there's all this stuff and we're always saying we need to get more proximate. Like there's like, mm -hmm. like proximity is so necessary and we can actually never get close enough to the work. Right. You, you mm -hmm. have to keep pushing yourself to understand. And it begs the question of who is the expert? And if you see yourself as the expert, then you're not in a position to help in the way that you, yes. think you are. In philanthropy, we have power and position. We have influence. And there's an opportunity for us to act different in the name of justice, mm -hmm. act different in reflection of the learnings 
that if we didn't have it before last year, perhaps we're a little bit more learned <laughs> and that um, without having listened or had we had listened because the cries that our community has not been healthy in your language with relationship to the police wasn't unheard. That wasn't the first video that we've seen, mm -hmm. right? People are talking about parents need to get more active in their kids' education and they need to do this and they need to get engaged and they need to let us know what's going on and what's not working. Oh, people have been letting you know. Right. And, you know, they're making decisions every day with their decisions, what, you know, by, by making different choices with the schools, by expressing it. But I'm not sure we've been listening. And so I think some of the lessons that you just said could also be applied to many other sectors, including philanthropy. And, you know, I know you've worked closely with philanthropy and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you see the same relatability that I, that I was feeling as you were talking. Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the challenges with uh, the philanthropic community is the 30,000 foot or the ivory tower <clears throat> framework. You know, we, we dole out uh, resources. Uh, when there needs to be partnership, how do you create partnership capacity and develop uh, leaders who do not fit uh, the model that you believe the leadership model should should uh, should fit? So I, I want someone who graduates uh, from the University of Minnesota. I want them to have a master's in this. No, your best leader may be the individual who records George Floyd's death. That may be the person that then you develop capacity versus saying what we think you need, what do you need? We, we lead um, by following, by serving. I like the way Mohandas Gandhi says it. He said, a quote, uh, in a paraphrase, he says, there go my people, let me catch up to them. And, and his point in making the statement was, is I have to know where the people are first. The other piece is you have to be rooted in the story of the community that you are committing to. If you don't know the nuance and the beauty of, of those stories, we will make the mistake of viewing the community through the lens of tragedy, trauma, uh, and brokenness. That's why one of my favorite filmmakers is, is, is Barry Jenkins. And Barry Jenkins, though, he may take something like, uh, you know, Moonlight or if Beale Street could only uh, could, could talk or the, under, the Underground Railroad is the recent one that he's doing now. It's pretty, pretty amazing, very difficult. He was very clear that the way in which he, he creates his films, he says it has to be a totality, meaning there has to be the beauty along with some challenges. But if you can't see the beauty, then you can't see the totality of this community. If there is no black joy, then there is no black film. There is no black poetry. There is no black preaching. There is no black music. There, none of that. And so, if if you aren't if you can't recognize the joy, if you can't recognize the totality of that community, then you end up with a colonizer mindset or missionary mindset in reference to the community that you want to serve so it's partnership that begins we're on this we're on the even even level the, the leaders are already present 
How do we support them? How can they guide us? And we come out on the other side, if we are funders, if we're the philanthropic organizations, we are students and learning in the process. So what are we going to learn? What is the board of the trust going to learn? Are you going to spend several days with the organic leadership of this community and listen and learn and recognize the gifted skills that they already have? You, I mean, you have to, you've got to, we've got to view it from, from that perspective or we continue to repeat the same cycles over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, um, you know, just to make another sort of slight uh, pivot and maybe connect some of these actions, because now, you know, if you if you understand that you are a, a listener and that mm -hmm. leadership exists um, and you can see how racism plays out, then maybe you begin to see structural racism differently and maybe you begin to see why policy making is so important to view through a racialized construct. I'm pulling from all your stories today. And so your grandfather, I'm sure you're probably tired of talking about this story. I don't know, but I did watch the film. I think it's amazing. But I would love it if you would just share a little bit about the story of your grandfather and the connection to voting. Sure. Well, thank you very much um, for, for mentioning that and uh, you know, honoring my grandfather by just, just lifting that up. Um, I think he has gotten more recognition in his passing uh, than when he was, was living, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, we created a film, uh, for those uh, listening, uh, entitled Otis's Dream. You know, I'm named it after uh, my father. My father's named after his father. And it was his dream to vote in uh, 1946 in, in Georgia. He was going to vote against a gentleman, and I use that term loosely, a gentleman, a politician by the name of Eugene Talmadge, who was running for governor. Talmadge was an avowed racist. As a matter of fact, I'm not making this up because people think it's like hyperbole when I say it. He had a campaign that said, I want to make Georgia great again, um, which was it's just really kind of bizarre and ironic to ensure that people of African descent, as he said, if you elect me, there will be no Negro who will ever vote in another Georgia primary. I'm going to make this state great again. And my grandfather was a sharecropper. He did not have a formal education. His wife uh, died um, roughly six months after she gave birth to her youngest child, my uncle, Uncle Mitchell. She died as a result of medical apartheid because they would not uh, service her at the a quote unquote, white hospital. So she she dies as a result of, of medical apartheid. My, my grandfather is now raising five children alone. He chooses to continue to raise those five children alone, which is a fascinating thing in our family because in that during that time period, most men would have gotten remarried, but he chooses to be a single 
father. And our belief is, is that the love between them, because his wife, Magnolia Moss, my grandmother, was much more educated than he was. Uh, you know, she was the educator of the family. She's the one that's teaching people, you know, the proper grammar and how to read and all of that. And he's a sharecropper mm. who was a veteran, a uh, very proud man. And in 1940, in 1946, he decides that he is going to, to vote. He's going to vote against Talmadge in what is known as Troop County, Georgia, which is roughly about an hour and a half from Atlanta, uh, outside of a small city and known as LaGrange. That would have been the, the county seat in the, uh, the, the largest city uh, around close to Troop County. And the first polling place he, he goes to, uh, he's denied access to the polls. Is you know, boy, you're at the wrong place. He goes to the next polling place, which is an, roughly another nine miles. He's already walked like nine miles to the one polling place. He walks another nine miles to the next. And they tell him, you're in the wrong place. You got to go to this other polling place. Uh, and this, the lore that we know of is that more than likely, every time he came in to vote, someone called ahead to the next polling place to say there's a Negro on his way because it was shocking for in this rural community for this. Yeah, he had his Sunday suit on, this well-dressed black man to walk into a polling place and say, give me my ballot. And no, the law said, technically the law said, I have the right to vote. Now there are all these other ways in which they would keep you from voting like what they did with my grandfather. So first polling place, no. Second polling place, no. Last polling place, um, he gets to the polling place and they close the door in his face and say, boy, if you'd been here a few minutes earlier, you would have been able to vote. So he's already, you know, this is like this 20 mile journey, walking rural Georgia alone. Black person, 1946, walking in Eastern, I'm sorry, Western portion of Georgia alone and then having to walk home alone as it's getting dark. What my father said is that we weren't sure if our father was going to return, all because he made the decision to try and vote. He comes home, they're excited, they think he's voted, and they said, Papa, did you vote? He said, no, not this time, but I will next time. Two months before he was able to cast his ballot, he was uh, killed uh, in an automobile accident. So he never had the opportunity to vote which inspired my father, my aunts, and my uncle, that everyone in my family, in some form, joined some cause around voting rights. My father joined civil rights movement. Uh, my, my Aunt Josie, we like to joke, she's the feminist of the family. Uh, she was specifically in and around women, Black women's rights vote. Uh, my other uh, uh, aunt, aunts, all of them gathered with their churches around voting. And uh, my uncle Mitchell, same thing, uh, local community around vote. Every, and, and no one really talked about it much. And so I start, you know, communicating with them that everybody had this deep seated ethic. You have to vote, 
you have to encourage other people to vote. It's your right to vote. You do whatever is necessary to make sure no one takes that right away. And when I had my first opportunity to vote, I was uh, with, uh, with, with my father. I had the first time I had the opportunity to vote for a president, I, was, I voted for a black man, mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson. Uh, and my father jokes and says that he paused. He was in one booth, I was in the other. And he said he paused and he had to hear the click of me voting. And he said he never heard something so beautiful in his life because he knew at that moment that that click was was created because of his father. And then when I took my son to vote for the first time, the first person that he had the opportunity to vote for was a black woman. And after he voted, he calls his grandfather and tells him, he said, Papa, he said, voted today. And my father, he got real emotional. You know, here he was, his father was denied. My father fights for the right to vote um, as a part of the civil rights movement at SCLC. He takes me to vote for the first time and the shocking, strange moment, I get a chance to vote in a primary for Reverend Jesse Jackson. My son, gets a chance to vote in the mayoral election here in Chicago and votes for a black woman. <laughs> so he was just thinking it was blowing him away that my, my, my son and my grandson were able to vote for someone my father only could dream of, of being on a ballot. There, there's so much um, emotion in there and pride in there. And, you know, I'll go where I think I started, which is sort of this connection to history, like our country's history, um, the removal of it from our educational system has stripped so much of that understanding from everyone. But I think even in our own families, and I, you know, I know that there were people in my, in my family that had to go through something very similar. Mm. And many families of of color, um, Jewish families that have to endure some level of what your grandfather did. But because a lot of that history, even within families have not been shared, it's too painful to share, haven't been able to be documented. Um, I think, you know, we lose, a bit of the connection of what people endured in a very personal proximate way to get us to where we can go. And I love that it traces um, that in your family and that that legacy continues and um, voting, um, not just in honor of what black people had to endure, but what your grandfather did on behalf Mm -hmm. of you and your family and then the rest of us got to benefit from it. Mm. Um, it's really quite remarkable. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that story because um, I'm so inspired by it. So I personally just wanted to hear it. Um, but I also appreciate it because again, I don't think that we often realize how close in our history, how, how um, that we can touch the practices of the past that have morphed into some of the things that we're seeing today relative to our rights. 
um, as a people. And so when people are saying, well, why don't folks care about education or why aren't they voting or why aren't they whatevering? And it's like, well, do you understand what people had to endure? Do you understand it was a life or death situation? And do you understand the tests that we're giving at the polls? Do you understand you know, all of these things and how it materializes and gets shared um, is through an experience of, of pain and, and fear. And um, so, so when you hear about things that are happening in Georgia and you see where um, some of the political um, places we are, not to get overly political, but do you feel like there's been um, progress? And are you looking do you feel hopeful as we close? Do you feel hopeful? Do you think there's progress? Oh, yeah, I, I certainly feel hopeful because of the energy and the commitment, the voices, the actions that have been taken by so many young, brilliant activists, policy makers, artists, and ministers institutional builders there has been movement i mean i'm all i always have to remind myself remind other people when when i'm having conversations with people and, and they say things haven't changed uh we're dealing with the same thing and uh, i always remind someone um i was having a conversation not too long ago with someone i said now before you say that i want you to think about harriet Harriet Tubman and her work and her ability to be able to face the tragedy of her moment and not fall into despair. She didn't have the organizing tools that we had. There was no social media. There were no hashtags. She, she did not have the ability to uh, drive north, fly southwest north. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't have any of those abilities. Uh, but yet she she remained hopeful because her work was not for her. She, really, she was real clear. My work is for those who haven't been born yet, period. That's what I'm doing. I'm making a way for you. And if a woman who was born enslaved, I think she was about 14, a man took a two pound weight to her head uh, and knocked her unconscious, had to experience the kind of vitriol and assaults that we can only imagine could remain hopeful? Well, <laughs> she, she, she is, I always go back, when she, she is a model for me along with Frederick Douglass. Now, being hopeful does not mean that you are um, saying that we're just going to sing kumbaya being hopeful means realistic hope prophetic hope says that we are going to wrestle with these demons and and exercise them from our soul the american soul and we have to wrestle with them we have to exercise them uh, we have to fight with them because unfortunately, the demons are not just systematic in our culture and in civic society. That the residue of what makes the system possible is 
within all of us. And that's what uh, the, the great African theologian name is St. Augustine tells us that we all have this piece of brokenness. Um, I like to put it this way. Everybody has a halo and horns at the same time. Um, you just catch me on the wrong day. It may be a halo day. <laughs> Could be a horn day. Um, and we all have to wrestle with that. Uh, so, so there has been progress, but we are still, unfortunately, um, we have systematic racism on heavy rotation in our playlist. And, and that is the challenge with America. Uh, will we add some new songs? Will we delete some old songs? Or will we create an entirely new song and chorus for us to sing? And that's really gonna be the question for the future. What a perfect note to end on. <laughs> I'm feeling quite clever with that line. <laughs> Um, I appreciate you so much and the work that you are leading and the thoughtfulness that you're putting in um, to it. And thank you. Thanks again to Target for sponsoring this episode. This conversation was in partnership with Westminster Town Hall Forum, a special racial justice series in this month of May. If you're interested in sponsoring this conversation or looking for ways to do more, please contact us. You can find more information on our website at minneapolisfoundation.org or just simply give us a call. If you like this episode, you can tweet Shonda at Shonda S. Baker and let her know or leave us a review and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Sarah Gillen for making our artwork and copy for this episode. And thank you to Darlin Benjamin for coordinating and making this conversation happen. This is Supak Kienitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening.